O God, our Father in heaven, we come before thee another Sabbath morning. We bow down thy holy throne in the name of thy Son. We come with that sense of our own unworthiness and our sin. We come, O Lord, to confess this before thee, that in us there is no good thing. In our flesh there is nothing but corruption. And yet we thank thee for all that Christ is to us. We rejoice in the Mediator. We rejoice in the Redeemer of sinners. And we thank thee for the fullness of redemption. Bless thee, O Lord, for every aspect of his work, both in life and in death and in his resurrection. We thank thee that he has ascended up on high as our forerunner, has gone within the veil, and there ever lives to pray for us. We approach thee, O Lord, on that basis of his perfect merit. We come and pray that thou wilt be with us as we gather here for another time around the world. We ask, Lord, that thou wilt touch our hearts and bless us as we consider the truths that will come before us. We pray that we will have the help of the Spirit and know thy touch upon our souls. Lord, breathe in every brother and sister, both here in the class and those online. We ask, Lord, that we will be taught of thee and be given great help by the Spirit to understand these matters that will come before us. O oh Lord, we pray for this entire day that the hand of God will be on us and that the presence of God will be around us in our gatherings and that thou wilt hover o'er us as the cloud dwelt upon the, the children of Israel in their journeys. O oh Lord, how we pray that we will know thy presence, the covering of the shadow of thy wings. Lord, come down and meet with us now. Bless our Sunday school with our little ones, our teachers, Remember the youth Bible classes, we commend all to Thee, and we pray, Lord, that Thou wilt meet the need of every heart and work this day for Thy glory. And so, Lord, abide with us now and continue with us here in this time. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for His sake and glory. Amen. Amen. Now turn, please, to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. I welcome you to our time this morning in the Bible class. Trust the Lord will be with us as we uh, gather before Him. And so I want to read a portion here. We welcome those online as well. Glad to have you joining with us once more. So Malachi chapter 1, and we'll read the first 11 verses of this chapter. Let us hear the Word of God. The burden of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down, and they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name. And ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. 
And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee? Or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts. And now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you that will shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire in mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. We'll just end there. You know, God will bless the reading of His Word to our hearts. Now, we have already noted that the prophet Malachi ministered from around the year 435 B.C. This was about 20 years after Ezra had returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, but it would certainly seem that these two men were contemporaries to some degree. We've also noticed in the first couple of studies on Malachi that Malachi dealt with some of the same sins as uh, are condemned by Nehemiah, especially in the final chapters of his book. And that also suggests that they were contemporaneous in, their, in terms of ministry. So these three men, Ezra, Nehemiah, and also Malachi, ministered about 70 or 80 years after the completion of the rebuilding of the temple. That was, that was finished. It was completed in the year 516 B.C., and so we're now about 70, 80 years farther on in history. However, sadly, by the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi, spiritual life that revolved around the temple and its worship had declined drastically. The religion of the visible congregation of God had become very formal. It was dead. It was powerless. There was no blessing upon the things of God at all. Uh, well, very, very little blessing in those days in which these men lived, and there was need, therefore, for great reform. So the mechanics of religion, yes, they were being followed, but there was no blessing among the people. And so it was Malachi's calling, along with the other men, but especially Malachi's calling, to expose this failure and to set before the people the causes and the signs of their dead religion, of their spiritual decay. And so throughout his prophecy, you'll find that Malachi adopts a very, very uh, marked, a very specific system of reasoning. He analyzes things. He follows, therefore, what's called the analytical style of reasoning uh, with the people of God. And we see this. I want to show you this in the study here this morning to begin with. And what he did was he focused on a series of questions and answers. And those questions and answers reflected a range of spiritual problems that existed within the minds and the hearts of the people of God, within the congregation of Israel. And you will know from the Word of God in many places that this is how the Lord 
often challenges people. He asks questions, and then he gives the answer. And that's what you find in Malachi. That's called the analytical method of reasoning, uh, using questions and answers in order to analyze something and to bring it out in all of its uh, glaring uh, understanding. So, let me just show you there are actually six examples of this style of reasoning throughout the book, and we'll look at them quickly. And number one, if you look at chapter one here, verses two to five, we're not going to read all those verses again, but you will see in verse number two it says this, I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Now, there you have insensitivity. That's really what sums up what's going on here in this particular question. This is the question of the people. They have the brazenness to ask the Lord, wherein hast thou loved us? Because the Lord says to them, I have loved you. He's speaking to Jacob here. He's speaking to Israel. He's speaking to those who are his people, at least in the outward sense. And think of all that he had done for them. He had brought them out of Babylon. He had given them the new temple. He had reinstated the priesthood. The offerings again were being uh, offered up to the Lord. So many things God had done. And yet, when he says to them, I have loved you, their answer was, wherein hast thou loved us? So there is the question. Then comes the answer from the Lord in verse 2 on into verse 3. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau. And what the Lord means there is, in a very real sense, Jacob did not deserve to be loved, and yet God loved him, and didn't set his love on Esau. Now, I know people have an awful lot of problems with that language, I hated Esau, but brothers and sisters, that's the language of the Holy Spirit. The Lord had no love for Esau in the sense that He loved Jacob. Yes, there was common grace for Esau. He had things provided for him as well, as you will find in Genesis. And yet Esau was a profane person. He despised his birthright. He despised uh, the, the blessing and so forth. And he lost his soul over that. And so for all that, the Lord speaks here in this way. But it's not really Esau that we should think about. It's those words, I loved Jacob. And here's the point, men and women, brothers and sisters. Do you deserve to be loved by the Lord? Can anybody say, I have deserved the love of God? Not a soul. You see, we're no better than Jacob. We're just as unrighteous, ungodly. He was a cunning rascal. He actually was. But the Lord loved him. He loved him in spite of his sin. And he just left Esau to his sin and had no love for Esau. And that is striking. But the point is, the people of God here in, in Malachi's day had the brazenness to say to the Lord, wherein hast thou loved us? And that's exactly what it was. They were so insensitive to what God had done to the Lord and what He had done for, for them, as I've said already, down through these years gone by since the return started under Ezra, Nehemiah, and so on. Uh, and they asked this question. So there's ins insensitivity. 
Go a little farther. Go down to verse 6. And here you have insincerity. Insincerity. Verse 6 says, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name? And this actually runs from here the whole way through into chapter 2, verse number 9. So from chapter 1, 6 to chapter 2, verse 9, you can write over all those verses, insincerity. Because in these verses, the focus is on the worship of God. But the revelation is of worship given by the Jews, by the people of Israel, that was utterly devoid of sincerity. If you look at verse 7, for example, here's what they were doing. Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and yet ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? If you look at verse 8, if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? If ye offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? And so on. So they were doing all these things. The questions raise what was actually happening. These are God's questions. He says in verse 6, if I am a father, well, where's mine honor? Or if I'm a master, where's my fear? You see, they were going through the form of religion. They were saying that God is our Father, that God is our Master. They were saying we're coming to the Lord with our offerings and with our sacrifices. But everything was marked by insincerity because they brought the worst of their animals. They brought the lame and the sick and the blind. And God's law had said in Leviticus they weren't to do that. They weren't to bring animals that were sick or had a blemish on them or whatever fault could have been found, and yet they were doing this. And so they were just going through the form and the motion of worship, but there was no love for the Lord. There was no sincerity whatsoever. It was all marked by insincerity. And you and I need to learn from, from that because it's very easy, you know, to go through the ceremony and the form you can come and sit in your pew and you can take your Bible out and you can read it and you can go through all the motions, but do you really mean it? Is your heart in it? That was the problem. Whenever the heart of the professing Christian is in worship, it will not be insincere. Oh, it will not be perfect. We understand that. There's no such thing on this earth as perfect worship but it will have sincerity to it. And so, uh, there were not, only, uh, not only do we find here that there was insensitivity toward the Lord and His love for them, but there was insincerity. We have to keep moving to see these. Chapter 2, verse 10 through to 16. Here we have instability. Chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? So that's what they were saying. Uh, they were asking these questions themselves, or they were really phrasing truths or, or facts. Uh, have we not all one Father? Hath not God, one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother? By profaning the covenant of our fathers. And then it goes on down a little farther, and you find that in, in these, this passage, verse 10 to verse 16 of chapter 2, that the focus is on family life especially. But when you read these verses, you find that there was a total collapse of family life. If you go down there 
to verse 14. Yet ye say, Wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness uh, between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And in verse 15, the Lord takes them right back to the beginning. It says, Did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. And so what was going on in Israel was that marriages were collapsing. Moral life had collapsed. And I know that in this case here, it was again the, actually the religious leaders who were being exposed by God for their uh, treachery against their wives. And when that happens, that is inexcusable. The Bible makes it very clear that there is a ground for divorce, namely adultery, immorality. The Bible makes that very clear. And so that's what was going on here. The Lord, that was not his mind from the beginning. He made one man, one woman to stay together. Uh, if you take Adam and Eve, there's the institution of marriage. But man has destroyed that. Man has broken that by his own unfaithfulness in the realm of marriage. And this was going on. There was a moral collapse. Therefore, the whole nation was characterized by instability. You see, men and women, the marriage union, the family, uh, the family unit, is the backbone of the nation. That's a fact. That's a fact of life and history. And therefore, when moral collapse comes, we find that it's the family that comes under attack in so many ways, and that's true today. That is going on all around us. We are living in a society now, here in our own nation, that is marked by moral collapse. And God is wholly and completely displeased with what is going on. But this was happening in Malachi's day. So that's the third thing that we notice here, instability. Then uh, we come to inaccuracy. Look at chapter 217. Ye have, ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, Every one that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? And that keeps on going right through to chapter 3, uh, verse number 7. That's another section. And you write over that section, inaccuracy. Inaccuracy in this sense. These verses define the inaccurate views of the Lord that prevailed, because they were actually, they were questioning what the Lord was, or what the Lord has done. Look at verse 17 again. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. And so, they were asking questions, they were saying things that were uh, misrepresenting the Lord, that were wearying the Lord. This shows you the brazenness of their hearts. Uh, the inaccurate views, you see, that were being projected, inaccurate views of the Lord were everywhere throughout the nation, as, these, as this section shows you. And this is very solemn, because where there are inaccurate views of God, there is an utter failure to recognize sin. When God is not seen as He really is, 
Then sin is looked on as something trivial. When God is not viewed as being the holy, pure being that He is, then men have a very light view of their sin, of their wrongdoing, of their corruption. And they can cheat and lie and steal or do whatever they do, and it doesn't cost them a thought because they believe that they're answerable to nobody. And if they have any thought of the Lord at all, it's this. The Lord is not even to be brought into the equation. We're, we're away from that now. This is, uh, that kind of thinking is old-fashioned now. We don't need God. We don't need the Bible. We don't need the Ten Commandments. Inaccurate views of the Lord leads to an inaccurate view of sin and wickedness. It becomes a joke. It becomes the thing to do, and people sin with no thought of, of judgment whatsoever. And then, in the fifth place, from chapter 3, verse 8 through to verse number 12, we have what we might call insufficiency, because in these verses, the Lord deals with tithing. And He says in verse number 8, He asks the question, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But you say, Wherein have we robbed thee? The Lord asks the question, and yet they had the boldness to go back and say, Well, how? Wherein have we robbed thee? And the Lord gives the answer in tithes and offerings. He says, Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Then he has to give the command, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, etc. A well-known verse. And so, there was no thought of giving the Lord what was His basic due, His tithe. And it wasn't really that they were giving the Lord anything. They were giving back to the Lord what He had given them. And they were not doing it. They were supposed to be, I mean, giving to the Lord what out of what He had given them. And He wasn't even asking for everything. He was only asking for a tenth. But they were not doing that. And so, what that means is there was an insufficient giving on the part of the people, so the Lord had to call them to bring in the tithes. And the New Testament is just as clear in that as the Old Testament. Tithing is not some outdated thing. It's not something for the past. It just doesn't belong to Israel in Old Testament times. It's clearly revealed in the New Testament. And there we are shown the very same uh, practice or the same issue of tithing. And then go to chapter 3, verse 13, and from there to chapter 4 and verse number 3, you have what I call impropriety. There was no proper order regarding their words or their attitudes or their recognition uh, concerning the things of God. Look at chapter 3, 13. Your words have been stout against me. I, I looked at this with you last week when I dealt with the final verses of this chapter concerning the remnant. But here's where it begins. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we, that we have kept His ordinance, and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy. Think about that. They're actually saying back to the Lord, when the Lord said to them and challenged them about their words, your words have been stout or strong against me, 
They said, well, what do you mean? What have we said? Or what have we spoken so much against thee? And here's what they had said. It's vain to serve God. Verse 14, what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? We have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts. They're saying there that we have gone through all the rituals and it is just a drudgery. That's what they're saying. And then verse 15, and now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. See what they're saying there in verse 15 when they when they actually come back to the Lord and they say, we, we call the proud happy. And those who are working wickedness, look at them. And those who tempt God, are, are, they're having a great time. And so what's happening here is the visible church is looking around at the world. And they see the world prospering. They see the ungodly happy, or so it seems. And those who work wickedness, well, they're set up. They're set up for life. They're set up by becoming rulers of nations and immensely wealthy and, and all the rest. That's what they're saying in verse 15. God's people are saying this. And they're saying, look at us. We have done all these things that you required of us, and what benefit has it brought to us? Oh, man, woman, let me tell you something. Their words and their attitudes were completely out of order. You see, the Lord doesn't promise anybody wealth or happiness or, uh, I mean, in a carnal sense. He doesn't give that promise to men. He tells men that they are to work and they're to earn their bread and so on with the sweat of their brow. He says all these things to men. And if God happens to bless somebody with riches and His common grace, that's fine. But they're talking here about people who are proud, they are wicked, they are tempters of God. And you see, the world lives that way. The world is filled with pride and with wickedness, and, and men prosper as a result of their wickedness and their dishonesty and their pride, because they want to climb the ladder. They want to get set up over everybody else. And from a certain perspective and for a certain time, they, they arrive there. And the danger is for Christians to look on and say, well, look at them. They never think about God. They never pray. They don't go to church. They, uh, they live as they live. And, and, and yet, they seem to be prospering. This has been the conundrum that has plagued many of God's people down through the years. And, they, and then they say to themselves, well, we have, we have uh, walked mournfully and We've kept His ordinance. Uh, we, we've gone to church. We've we have done all these things. And, but look at them. They never go near church, and they're prospering. And Christians then begin to get the wrong attitude. Well, those who say they're Christians. It's like Psalm 37, where the psalmist actually says that he saw the wicked prosper and in great power, spreading himself like a green bay tree. And there was the temptation to be envious. Let me say to you, my dear friend, don't envy the ungodly. Don't envy those who tempt God with their wickedness, who are set up in high places politically, uh, in the world of finance, 
whatever it might be, don't envy them. Because in the midst of it all, they're just heaping up wrath for the day of wrath. Whatever God gives you as His child, be thankful for it. And serve the Lord with gladness. Don't have a wrong attitude. Don't think that you're been ill done by because the ungodly reprobate down the road, down your street, he's prospering, he's doing so well, and you're maybe, you're maybe pinching your pennies to try to get through. And you say to yourself, this is not right, this is not fair. Why should they prosper? And I'm trying to serve God and do as well, and look at me. You see, that's what happens. That's what's happened here. And it was very improper. I've used the word impropriety, and that's where you get it from. Improper. What's improper leads to impropriety and and this idea that uh, things are just not right for me and I'm ill done by. I tell you, the marks that we have throughout this book are still very, very prevalent in our day and time. It's a very dismal situation, therefore, that prevailed. I've just taken you as quick as I could through those six features in this book that are highlighted by questions and answers. And therefore, a very dismal situation did prevail among those who professed the Lord's name. It's actually evident that this continued. I explained to you that between Malachi and Christ's day, there's about 400 years. And when you get to the end of the 400 years and the Lord arrives on the scene and begin to new, read the New Testament concerning His birth and His life and on through, what do you discover? You discover that this same kind of attitude and even more aspects to it uh, prevailed and continued right down through into the days of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it had worsened and come to a very low level altogether in the days of Jesus Christ. So it would be all very bleak and dismal, but for verse 11. And that's what I just want to draw to your attention of chapter 1, verse 11. And this is really set in the scene here where the Lord is dealing with worship. I showed you that. The second section from chapter 1, 6 to chapter 2, 9 is dealing with insincerity and worship. And I've gone through that uh, already. But look at verse 11. For from the rising of the sun even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering, and for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. This is a remarkable prophecy. In verse 11 here, the Lord reveals that the Levitical and the ceremonial priesthood and everything to do with it was going to be abolished. And a whole new system or administration was going to be introduced. This verse is prophetic of the New Testament age and the life and the witness of the New Testament church is essentially a prophecy of the gospel going out into the entire world. So what's God showing the people of Malachi's day? He's exposing all these uh, features that I've mentioned, uh, all of these details that I've gone through with you 
insensitivity and insincerity and instability and inaccuracy and insufficiency and impropriety. He exposes all that. And he's really saying to them, your religion is dead and vain, but I'm going to bring in a whole new system of things. That's what verse 11 is all about. And so, we'll just look at that in the latter part of this time today around the Word. And in, in, in verse 11, we find that those people whom the Lord makes His own in gospel times are in focus. And there are three things about them I want you just to notice. There's their priestliness. Notice this, the, these words in verse 11. From the rising of the sun, even on to the going down of the same, from the east to the west, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, a pure offering, etc. That language underlines the fact of the priestliness of those who are the Lord's people in New Testament days. In other words, in Old Testament days there was the, the priesthood of Israel. It is now largely defunct. It had failed again. And yet the Lord's bringing a prophecy here in verse 11 that shows that He's going to take sinners from all nations, and He's going to make them His New Testament priesthood. Now, I've touched on this in looking at Malachi and what we have seen already in, in two previous studies. And I took you to 1 Peter and looked at 1 Peter 2, verse 5 and verse 9. And in those two verses, the Lord speaks of Christians in New Testament days as a holy priesthood and a royal priesthood. If you want to turn again to it, please do that. First Peter chapter 2 and the verse number 5. It says, Ye also as lively stones or living stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And then verse number 9 Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. So, Christians are referred to as a priesthood. This is the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. And so, keep that in mind. That's what the Lord is predicting in chapter 111 of Malachi, that there would be a priesthood set up from the converts throughout the Gentile world. And, of course, it would include Jews who are brought to know Jesus Christ as well. And let me just say this in passing. In Old Testament days, by no means are we to conclude that there were no true priests unto God, spiritually speaking, within the nation of Israel. There certainly were. But he's showing here, against the background of the awful state of things in Malachi's day, the day is coming when things will be much better when there will be a priesthood raised up uh, for God and for His glory. If you look with me here, notice the emphasis on acceptance, because it says uh, in verse 11 that in every place incense shall be offered unto my name and a pure offering. Just note those words for a moment. But if you contrast that with verse 7 and verse 8, which we read earlier, where he condemns the offerings of Israel in Malachi's day. You offer polluted bread upon mine altar. Verse 8, you offer the blind. You offer the lame and the sick, etc., etc. And so, those were impure offerings. And now the Lord really specifies. There's going to be in every place in these days ahead, 
the offering of incense and a pure offering. And so just notice the reference there to the offering of incense. Are we a little later on now in our morning worship service going to have an altar set up here and burn incense on it unto God? No, we're not. Because the incense that's in view in verse 11, that's going to be offered up among the Gentiles to the name of God, is prayer. The Bible teaches that the burning of incense was symbolic of the praying of the people of God. And there are too many verses to which I could take you. That would only take up too much time, but I think that most of you are aware of this. Prayer, or sorry, incense was offered by the priests of Israel. They had a censer. They, it was full of coals of fire. They sprinkled uh, different spices on the top of those coals, and they ignited the spices the burning coals, and a cloud of incense arose. But it was symbolic of prayer. Now, how can our prayers be like a sweet incense? Because they are offered through Christ and as merit. You see, I think I just should say this because it's important. Many a Christian wonders, are my prayers worth anything? Will God listen to me? Ah, my dear friend, as you pray in Jesus' name, and you pray with a, an eye to uh, His finished work, His perfect obedience, that's the sweet spice that gives impetus to your praying. That is the sweet spice that, that, uh, that brings the, the incense of a, of a sweet-smelling savor mingled with your praying. So as you get down to pray, plead the blood of the Lamb. Plead the merit of Jesus Christ. Look away to His perfect obedience. Come before the Lord in the Savior's name. Why do we teach our children to pray that way? In Jesus' name, for this very reason. All that we do is worthless and hopeless apart from the sweet incense of the Lord's merit. But all that he has gives value to. That's brought out by those words, pure offering. You notice that word pure uh, attached to the word offering there in verse 11. The original Hebrew word means clean, a clean offering. Again, that's contrasted with the unclean or the impure offerings of the Jews, the blind and the lame and the sick, the animals were been brought full of faults and blemishes. The Lord rejected them. But thank God there is a pure offering. And of course, this is Christ's offering, the offering of the Lord Jesus. The first time the word, this word for pure is used in the Old Testament is with regard to the Ark of the Covenant. And it says there in Exodus 15, 11, that the Ark of the Covenant was to be covered with pure gold. You see, you could have gold. You might have a gold ring, or you might have a gold necklace, or whatever. But if it's examined closely, it's not pure gold. Maybe your husband told you it is, but it may not be. Pure gold is something that stands on its own. It's gold in which there is no uh, impurity whatsoever in terms of other ingredients that are, that are in there. And so, that's the first time the word pure is used, and the Ark of the Covenant was to be covered with pure gold. And the word for pure 
that's used here and first used in Exodus 15.11 is actually used 20 sorry, 28 times in Exodus, all in relation to the construction of the tabernacle. The, the gold that Bezaliel used as he built the tabernacle had to be without any impure ingredient. So it had to be, well, whatever, however you purify gold, that whole process, it had to be purified until it was absolutely pure. Or another place the word is used is Proverbs 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. There's no fault, there's no blemish in any word of God. There cannot be, because there's no blemish in God. Oh, our words can be full of blemish and fault, because they come from hearts that are not fully clean. And so there are bound to be impurities in our words. Or Habakkuk 1.13, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil. And those are the eyes of God. Of course, it's, a, it's a, a metaphor, simply saying that God's view is not tainted with any blemish, any fault, any sin. His eyes are pure. I know that you and I were like that. One day we will be, but not now. Not that we make that an excuse, but what I'm simply saying is, this purity that's mentioned here, the pure offering, is something that has no equal. And so it's Christ's offering. The offering of the Lord Jesus was a pure offering for the simple reason that He was pure. He offered Himself without spot to God. And so Malachi is predicting here a day when there will be the sweet incense and the pure offering of Jesus Christ. And that gives us acceptance with God. Oh, how could we ever come before God in all our impurity? We would be shut out forever. But thank God we approach and we pray and we worship as a holy priesthood, as a royal priesthood, as those who are covered with Christ's righteousness and accepted in Him and blessed and heard by Almighty God. And so we have access to God because of our Savior. Isn't that what Paul teaches in Hebrews 10? Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest. That's something. Just think about entering into the holiest. That means into the presence of the pure, holy God. And yet Paul says we have and he means confidence. The word boldness means confidence. We have confidence to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And through that new and living way that Christ has opened up. There's also not only their priestliness, but their profusion. If you look at Malachi 1.11 again, it says, From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And then at the end of the verse, my name shall be great among the heathen. In addition, he says, in every place. says that in the center of the verse, in every place. That's what I mean by the profusion. In other words, there's a reference here on a, on a, to a universal scene. Gentiles from east and west, 
people saved by grace in every place, every nation, every kindred, every tongue, every people. That's what's being predicted in this marvelous verse, Malachi 1 and verse 11. And therefore, there's a profusion of people. It's not a little handful. It's a, an innumerable multitude taking the whole work of God down through time, a great gathering of people unto the Lord upon the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. You know, that shows us the validity of the Savior's work. Such a, a profusion of converts, saved and changed and redeemed and delivered from their sin, validates the redemptive work of Christ in that sense that when, when across the nations throughout time God gathers out people, He regenerates them, He justifies them, He sanctifies them, He finally glorifies them, He takes them home to heaven. And they, they're in their multitudes, this wide, wide profusion of people. Does that not validate the death of Jesus Christ, the perfect obedience of Christ, the atoning death of Christ? Because there's not a nation from which there won't be converts. And that means that the death of Christ is given this wonderful, blessed validation. It is a, his death and his whole work is marked by reality, is marked by power, is marked by sufficiency. And that means we can have confidence in the value of the work of Jesus Christ. Think of sinners today, deep down in sin. Uh, is there a point at which the Lord has to stop, where he has to say, well, you know, this sinner is too bad, too far gone for me to save. No, there's no limit to it, to the value of the work of Jesus Christ. We go through our Bibles, and we find a Manasseh who was utterly gross in his sin. But God saved him and made him a new man. We think of a Saul of Tarsus who was immersed in dead formal religion, so much so that he was blinded by it, hardened by it, hated Christ because of his dead formal religion, and yet God saved him. And you think of Matthew, the tax collector, engrossed in finance. It's all he lived for, it's all he thought about, but God saved him. Oh, my dear friend, the Bible shows to us the value of the Lord's work as well as the validity of His work. If you go to Corinth and you read those blessed verses, after which the Lord has said, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither the fornicator or the adulterer or the effeminate or abusers themselves with mankind or drunkards or extortioners or what He keeps on going shall inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says, but you're washed. No, he says, such were some of you, but you're washed and you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Sitting in the pews and corns, just to put it that way, there was a whole array of people from that background. Adulterers, fornicators, sodomites, drunkards, 
thieves. They're all sitting in the church in Corinth because God has saved them and made something of them. And it's the same right across the nations of the earth. God saves sinners. Christ came not to call the righteous, that is the self-righteous, but sinners. It's sin that qualifies a sinner for Christ. Not anything he has done or thinks he has done. And then there's their praise as I close for the time is gone. It says there, from the rising of the sun even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great. And toward the end of the verse, my name shall be great among the heathen. That's praise. And so, what a verse this is in contrast with what we find in Malachi in terms of that awful day, a reflection of any given time in the history of this world, a day when religion becomes dead and stale and hopeless and powerless. And yet in the middle of it all, the Lord works, and our hearts should be glad and thankful for such a scene as is brought before us. May the Lord write His Word in our hearts again and bless it to us. We will bow in prayer and we'll commit our way to the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we come before Thee in the name of Thy Son. We bow down in praise and in worship at Thy feet. We thank Thee for the opportunity to gather in this manner, to study the Word, to look at what Thou wilt say to us on these Sunday mornings. O Lord, bless Thy truth to us. Be with us now, bless the time of prayer, bless the assembly of the people. Come down among us in the morning worship season, grant us help from heaven. O Lord, do a work in our hearts and visit us, we pray. We ask all this for Jesus' sake, for His glory. Amen.